0: Would you all pray with me? Father in heaven, we are grateful that you gather us by the power of your spirit and that you send us out according to your word. We pray that you would guide us even today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You all can go ahead and be seated. I'd quickly like to read you again those incredible words from our gospel reading at the end. Jesus says, he says, forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put into your lap. The measure you give will be the measure that you get back. And what Jesus means here is is just like common goods, flour or grain, you can imagine, pressed into a container so much that it spills over without impurities or fillers or short shrift. Jesus says he will provide an abundance for those who live with generosity. It's countercultural teaching, to be sure. The more you give, the more you receive. Notice here also, it's not just about generosity in giving. It's not just about money or about goods. It is also a generosity of spirit. It's about giving and showing mercy. In other words, Jesus is trying to teach us how we might orient our whole lives. How we might give away our entire selves, even our rights, because we know that He will give back. He says we can forgive, we can give, because we can trust what Jesus says that God will give to us, even if we give away our entire selves. And this is a teaching that is most assuredly fully orbed. It involves all of our persons, all of our talents, all of our gifts, our souls, and our inclinations. We don't need to cling or to claim or to judge or even to resent because God, it says, is the giver of all good gifts. The example I think of when I hear Jesus describe this is the example of St. Basil the Great. Basil was uh, one of the Cappadocian fathers. He, he was... Uh, Part of this really remarkable group of men in the fourth century theologians and prelates, and uh, they were inc- they were powerful people. This was back in the day when theologians and bishops actually were very powerful. And uh, there was an occasion once where the emperor Valens, who was someone you would not want to mess with, he was an emperor, sent one of his prefects to kind of quiet down Basil. Basil disagreed with Valens on a few theological issues, and so the prefect came and confronted Basil, and Basil dealt with the man so forcibly in his chambers that he was visibly shocked, if you read Basil's sister's account of this. He was so shocked, and all he could say as he sort of quaked in his sandals was, I have never been spoken to in this way before. And Basil leaned in apparently and said, perhaps you have never spoken with a bishop. Again, bishops, powerful people in those days. Basil was one of incredible respect and power, pedigree. He had an impressive family. But rather than hold on to his goods, all the things that he had been given, he gave away his entire family inheritance, all of his inheritance to the poor, in his diocese. Can you imagine a bishop today giving away all of their inheritance to the poor, to their neighbors? That's incredible. And he did this because Basil, at his very core, knew that God was the rock of his life. He knew without any shadow of doubt that by the power of the Spirit, God would provide for him whatever he needed in whatever scenario, in whatever context. Basil was a believer. We see this also in our Old Testament reading today, a little different. Basil is a fine example, I think, of the way in which we can give away our goods and confidence that God will provide in some way or measure. But we also see this in the area of forgiveness. It's not, again, Jesus tells us about giving away our goods. It is about giving away our rights. It's about mercy, about forgiveness. And it's just what we see in the story uh, the Old Testament story of Joseph reconciling with his brothers. You'll remember the story, perhaps Joseph was abandoned by his brothers. At first they had thought, oh, maybe we'll, we'll just kill him. <laughs> and then they said, no, no, we'll throw him into a pit. And then they decided, oh, you know, well, let's sell him into slavery. So there were options there. I, th- I think all of them were pretty lousy, personally, but uh, they decided to sell him into slavery. And he goes off uh, to Egypt. Eventually, he's imprisoned. He's kind of at the the lowest of the lows. All of this is incredibly unfair. He didn't deserve any of the treatments that he had been given. But slowly, he began to gain prominence. In fact, by God's hand, eventually, he became uh, the right-hand man under Pharaoh. Pharaoh, of course, in those days was one of the more powerful people on earth. And so, Joseph enjoyed a preeminent position of authority. And then one day, by sheer coincidence, it seems, there's a famine. And his brothers end up in Pharaoh's court. They don't recognize him, but they beg him for food. They say, please help us. And in that moment, he has the perfect opportunity to punish them. He didn't even have to do anything. In fact, all he would have had to do is say no, and they would have received exactly what he had received, which is abandonment unto death. They would have gotten what they deserved, in short. And I think, while well, it might be easy to think of the wrongs that Joseph's brothers did to him in sort of typical brotherly jargon. Many of you have brothers. I have a brother. A lot of times in brotherly relationships, we can tend to intermix cruelty with humor, But selling your brother into slavery is not a sort of fraternity prank. At that time, it was an irreversible uh, sentence. It would mean never, ever seeing that person ever again. Remember, there are no cars or planes or cell phones. They would be gone forever and ever. Amen. A kind of action says, I am done with you. I despise you and I never want to see you again. And so you can imagine the kind of resentment that Joseph must assuredly have felt for many, many years after his brothers had abandoned him. And then all of a sudden they appear in his court under his own authority. You can imagine that the vindication would have felt like a balm to his soul. But then you saw what happens. Joseph does the exact reverse of what we think he should do. In this moment of great mystery, he breaks down, he begins weeping, he gathers them into his arms, and he tells them, Do not be afraid. God planned all of this out. You meant it all for evil, I know, but God's plans, they are always good. And to me, the interesting question here is not really why Joseph would forgive. There are some reasons you could see there. He wanted to see his father again. Uh, Forgiveness is actually commanded in the Old Testament, just like in the New. There's no real difference in Jesus' teaching in that area. But the question that I have ringing in my ears is, what conditions enabled a forgiveness like that? You see what I mean? How in the world could someone forgive in that way? And it seems like it comes out of his very soul. It doesn't seem like it's a hard decision for him to make. In the story, in fact, he weeps so loudly that all of the servants, the other Egyptians in his quarters, they hear him and they wonder, what could possibly be going on? He's weeping over his brothers. So you see, I wonder, what conditions enabled Joseph to forgive like that? I think there's one clue here. It's what Joseph says after he reconciles. It's that clue where he says, you meant all of this for wickedness, but I know that God has a plan. You see, I think Joseph believed in the very core of his being, way deep down in his soul, that God would absolutely provide and give him everything that he would ever need, and that God's plans were actually good. In other words, he realized he needed nothing else other than what God gives and while I think there are times for plenty of us, remember, forgiveness is a commandment. Jesus tells us that we have to do it without even feeling it. It doesn't matter if we uh, harbor resentment, we have to do away with it. It doesn't matter if the relationship is damaged permanently, if it's something we can't restore, we are commanded again to forgive. But I think if we want to cultivate the kinds of internal conditions that would enable forgiveness to happen just like that with Joseph, for him to pour his arms over, to pour his tears over brothers that he most assuredly hated, I want to know how you get to that. And I think for Joseph, again, Joseph knew that God was his rock, he knew that God was his provider. In other words, if you and I want to live with generosity and forgiveness, I think the matter at hand is first and foremost about living in faith that God is exactly who he says he is, which is one who will provide for you in all circumstances. I think there's an, also, there's an additional resource here that Christians often talk about. You've probably heard of this. And it's a simple fact that we are all sinners. Scripture is clear about this. We are all sinners. In one sense, we probably can't emphasize it enough because we are so, uh, uh, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. St. Augustine in the earlier part of the Christian tradition inaugurated this idea um, about original sin. And part of what original sin means is that all facets of our personhood are fallen. Now that doesn't mean that everything from the bottom to the top is sinful. It doesn't mean that you are absolute sin. Trash, God doesn't make trash. What it means is that all the components of your personhood, your volition, your mind, your emotions, all of the things that make you a person are affected by the fall and thereby sinful. And what that means is that understanding your sin, while it can give you empathy, it can give you grace, it can give you hum- humility, it's actually a necessary part of spiritual maturity. I don't believe that understanding your sin can remove, can give you the kind of forgiveness that Joseph gives. Because think about it, if sin actually affects everything about our faculties, which means also our cognitive, our brains, the way we think, it means we will never be able to deconstruct our sinful lives enough that we would simply do away with sin to the degree that we can forgive in perfection. In other words, what I mean is, if you want to forgive like Joseph... Don't navel-gaze and deconstruct your sin away. You'll never do it quite enough. The thing that can bring you true forgiveness is adoration of God's purposes, looking to the sheer graciousness and goodness of God and trusting that He will provide. Proverbs 23:26 says this, My child, give me your heart and let your eyes delight in my ways. In other words, what the author of Proverbs means is delight in God himself. See what he does. Know his great goodness and favor over you. And then, then you will be able to give your whole heart freely to God. If you paid attention to our psalm, the refrain said almost exactly the same thing. And in fact, this is also what Jesus teaches us. He asks us to give away our things, to give away our resources, to give away our money, but even more, he asks us, you'll notice, to give away our whole lives, our hearts, everything about our person to him. When you do that, he says, you'll be able to do it more. Because in giving away your life to God, you will realize that you have everything that you could ever need. And I I just want you to pause and imagine what that might feel like. What would it feel like to be in the position where you trusted God's provision so wholeheartedly that you didn't need anything else. Think about it. You wouldn't need to manage your own persona or reputation. You wouldn't need to agonize over your financial situation that you might get the lifestyle that everyone else ostensibly has. You wouldn't need to struggle for all of the kinds of experiences that make your life feel significant or enjoyable, you, you wouldn't need to manage all of the details surrounding your world in order to maintain this uh, basic level of comfort. Maybe even most powerfully for some of us, you wouldn't need to seek vengeance or outrun those people who have wounded you the deepest. You would be able to give and to forgive. And Christians have done this In the past for many, many centuries and in many, many generations. Basil, Paul, anyone in between. But Christians still do this today. In fact, the best example that I can think of happened or I saw about seven and a half years ago. It was the weekend after I had been married. My wife and I, Caroline, were married in downtown Charleston, and the the week after that we were going for a walk, and unbeknownst to us, a young white man, a few blocks from where we were walking, had walked into a black church and been welcomed by the parishioners in that place of worship. And during their prayer meeting, he waited, and then at the appropriate moment, he pulled out a firearm and unloaded it into all of them. And you all most assuredly saw this story, it was Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in downtown Charleston. It was an indescribable act of unjust violence that I can only think of as horrific. But the day after the shooting, the other AME churches, the African Methodist Episcopal churches, invited all of the other congregations in downtown Charleston to come into one of their churches to lament this tragedy together. And so I went. And at that service, there was the most strange beauty to it. There was uh, grieving, there was prayer, there was sharing, and the sanctuary, not that unlike ours, was absolutely packed. There were people down the aisles, in the middle, on the sides, up at the front. It was shoulder to shoulder with people. And you have to remember that this was no small thing because no one had any idea if Dylan Roof, the shooter, had any accomplices or was interested in doing the same thing again. And so their act of hospitality was actually a profound act of courage as well. And as the service went on, it seemed to be ending, but there was this moment where suddenly the organist started to play again. And he led the whole congregation, I don't want have the lyrics or anything, led the whole congregation in that old gospel hymn, On Christ the Solid Rock I Stand. And everyone in the room, hundreds of people, black and white reporters, priests, liberals, conservatives, all raised their hands, caught up in this moment of lament and worship. Altogether affirming the faithfulness of God in Jesus Christ, the solid rock who cannot be shaken. And you'll remember if you watched these events unfold on TV, that that next day as well, the family members of those who were murdered were interviewed, were mothers, siblings, friends, sons, and daughters. And you'll remember that they each forgave Dylan Roof publicly. How could you ever do that? What kind of resources could make a person do such a thing? The reason that they could do that is because they knew, and they had known for very many generations in their community, that Jesus Christ is, in fact, the solid rock. They knew that Jesus Christ is the source and the master, the judge, the provider, the king, the counselor, the one who gives all life and takes it away. And so in that moment, when everyone in the world was looking, they could forgive. And so I challenge you, me, all of us, we can forgive, perhaps not because we understand that we are sinners, hopefully we do, but we can forgive because we know that the graciousness of God and Jesus Christ is a rock that cannot be shaken. That is how you give, that's how you forgive, that's how you live with abandon, by knowing that in every circumstances, every event, Jesus Christ is your rock. So I invite you all to heed the teachings of Jesus this morning. Give, and more will be given to you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.